Yeah, I, I actually did want to stay in because of everything it took to earn my Green Beret and get onto a team and you know, finally start earning some respect, right, from the team members and some cool guy schools and, you know, getting uh, a deployment under my belt. And I wanted to... Because I would imagine even at six years, you're just scratching the surface yeah. of the potential training and experience. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it's different experiences for different guys. I mean, some guys graduate the Q course and meet their team downrange and they're in a gunfight the next day, right? And then they have all these kinetic deployments and whatnot. It really depends on the hand you're dealt, right? And I felt that I hadn't gotten the experience that I had signed up for yet and really did feel called to re enlist. However, I was split from my wife. I was divorced or divorcing at the time. And my daughter was in San Diego with my ex-wife and I was in Tennessee and, and, or deployed. Right. And only getting to see my daughter for a few days, every few months. And it was brutal. And so I made one of the best decisions I ever made, which was to get out and get back to my daughter's life. Welcome to the Transition Drill Podcast. Joining me for episode 96 is Ashoka. Like Bono and Sting, he's a songwriter and he prefers to go by his stage name. Ashoka grew up playing football and ended up going to Yale on a scholarship. During his junior year, 9-11 happened. And after graduating, like many parents, his dad discouraged him from enlisting, not wanting him to waste a college education on the military. Ashoka also admits he didn't fully understand officer opportunities within the military at the time. But after many years of feeling this unfulfilled calling, he enlisted in the Army in 2010 and became a Green Beret. But after six years, though, an impending divorce and a greater desire to be present for his daughter, he chose to get out, and he struggled severely with this decision at the time. He got back to San Diego and did a year stint with the CIA. But in 2017, he wanted to go back and get his master's degree in international affairs. After graduating, he was back working for the government. But at the same time, he began a healing journey of introspection accepting his trauma and psychedelics therapy. That journey combined with a chance meeting with a music producer reignited his interest in music. Today, he and his fiance have formed the band Love and Lightning, and their first song, Brother in My Arms, is now available. Ashoka says his music helps him heal, but he also hopes it helps veterans heal. He gave me a copy of the song, so please stick around to the end of the episode to give it a listen. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Here we go with episode 96. How was Indianapolis? It was wild. Yeah, getting up on stage in front of a room full of Green Berets and some other service members, senior folks, sergeant majors, and there was a retired Navy, Navy admiral there and others, and, and to perform our original song that was written specifically, most directly for this community, and to get such a rousing ovation and, and such beautiful feedback was really inspiring. Very cool. First time you've ever performed in front of a military specific audience yeah it was and it was our second real performance we'd been doing open mics and whatnot our first was at the science of psychedelics conference in phoenix a few weeks prior and this was in indianapolis for the special forces association annual banquet dinner and uh, at their convention so it was really an honor that's really cool to get the the recognition and the acknowledgement of what you've done and and how the song is is basically aimed at helping others and then to bring it kind of full circle and put you in front of that audience. Yeah, that really for us it was validation that that the message was landing, right? And and of course it's super honoring for us to receive that 
type of applause from that type of audience. But m- more importantly to us was the fact that it landed and, and that, that the way they received it was a reflection of that. And it was interesting being up there singing this song about, you know, shining our light in the dark and remembering who we are. And, and it was really a call for those that are, that are in darkness to, to dig deep and to, to help others even. Right. Cause I know for a lot of us, we're such pack animals that when we're called upon to show up for someone else, sometimes that's easier than even showing up for ourselves. And so to be up there on that stage and singing, from this place, right? This work of love and, and sharing it and seeing these men, um, the looks I was getting, it was like very, very stoic, right? It was just a room full of warriors and their spouses and, and their armor was very much up. It was like they were looking over the tops of their <laughs> shields, right? But I felt, I felt it land and form. And then their response, you know, both in the applause and in the conversations afterwards as they came up to us and, you know, reflected how it impacted them was, um, was really special. I think that's one of the things for me that's been very eye-opening through this process of this podcast. And not that I didn't have a a sense of it or or realized it getting into it, but just really kind of going deeper into it. Most of us, either from the military or first responder community, we do, we put up those walls. We put up that barrier of I'm invincible. But I would imagine when you're singing a song and, and you can see that, like you, like you explained, you know, you're getting over that shield, but they're still keeping the shield up, but you had to have seen it in their eyes that there was something was turning on inside. Yeah. There was a, a sorrow. There was like the strength, you know, leaning into the, to the gunfight. Right. But there was, there was, there was a movement. There was a, there was something they were protecting and that something was their hearts because it was landing for them. And when we're in these jobs, whether it's a special operator, I imagine as a first responder, right? We have to compartmentalize what we go through in order to meet mission, in order to do what it is that we're trained to do. And so you stuff it down and you drive on and you square it away. And there really isn't necessarily, at least in my experience, a culture of being able to share and talk about these things, right? Because it is oftentimes perceived as weakness. And, and there probably is a place and a space for that compartmentalization in order to do the job. However, for me, you know, living life like that, even before the military, stuff it down and drive on, right? A lot of childhood trauma. And I just, you know, use that to propel myself and and, uh, toward my ambitions and success academically and otherwise. And, and at a certain point, it it just stopped working, right? And just holding on so tight and and having so much suppressed trauma, so many suppressed wounds that, that were really below the waterline of consciousness. And for me, it wasn't until I was blessed with some really world-class coaches and guides and healers that I was able to tap into that space and start to feel it. And, and it was scary as hell. And it was a smoker exhausting. Right. Um, but it's made all the difference, all the difference. And it's allowed me to have deeper, more meaningful relationships first and foremost with myself. Right. And it's allowed me to access parts of me that were just totally shut down. Right. And, um, the creativity and the music, has been a, a beautiful side effect of that and a beautiful gift that's come through that healing journey. Well, that's really cool. And what I want to do is I want to put that part on pause and you segued into it nicely. So let's go back to you as a young boy. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the San Francisco Bay, the East Bay area. I was born in a town called Walnut Creek and grew up in a town called Orinda, which is just east of Oakland and Berkeley. Was your family, mom, dad together, divorced? Yeah, so I was raised by my mom and my stepdad. Okay. But I didn't know that my stepdad wasn't 
my real dad until I was, I think, seven or eight years old. And it was interesting because at the time, you know, my mom had told me, oh, it's not a big deal. You know, you have a dad. And, and uh, I did. And I was very fortunate to have the dad that, that I did have growing up. However, learning that my biological father lived only 45 minutes away in San Francisco and never wanted to see me, never wanted to talk to me. That was something that only many years later, decades later, did I realize like how deeply that impacted that child as far as his self-worth and feeling you know, valuable and lovable. And so that was really one of those core wounds that, that drove me along this path of, on the one hand, running and numbing, right? Anything I could do to, to numb those feelings and check out. And then on the other side, it was success. So having straight A's, being an all league linebacker, team captain, going to Yale, and then years later, you know, needing to be special forces and beyond, right? Just to try to feel like I was enough. And it was, uh, I've come to find out a bit of a setup, right? There's no, there's no finish line for that. So, um, you know, having gone into the healing journey, that that's the path that, that I uh, finally ended up on and that's allowed me to show up more for myself and my loved ones and, and ultimately for others. So your mom and your biological dad never married? Correct. So you, I don't, I don't want to jump ahead, but did you ever know your biological dad at all as a young boy? No, no, I didn't meet him until I was, I think, 16 years old. But your mom was at least honest with you and told, not right away, but eventually told you that your stepdad is actually not your real dad. Correct. And, and I have a lot of compassion for her now, right? It's like, how do you tell right. a child that? Like, when is the healthy time and the healthy way to have that conversation and not totally keep them in the dark? Um, so it was, just was what it was. Did, looking back on it as an adult, once you learned that your biological, your stepdad was not your biological dad, did it change your relationship with him? I'd imagine that it must have. I, I never saw it through that lens. At least I don't think I did. To me, he was my dad. He was always there. He was at the Little League and the Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts. And, you know, he was my dad. And so it was a strange thing to learn when I did that, that he wasn't actually my dad or my real dad. Um, but I, I never thought it mattered. I never felt like less than in any way until I realized that it did. So consciously, you didn't perceive it as having an impact on you? Nope. No big deal. As a brother, sisters? Yeah, a brother and a sister uh, from my stepdad and, and my mom. And then when I met my biological father, he had a son as well that was um, my younger half-brother. So technically two half-brothers and a, and a half-sister in a split family. And as far as in the pecking order, were you, are you the oldest? The oldest. You're the oldest? Correct. Were you a good kid growing up? Troublemaker? Mainly a good kid. I was really good at putting on the good kid act. And when I was young, I was bullied until about fourth grade. When then I had a big growth spurt. I'm six foot five now, 230 pounds. And I've been big since then. Right. And that changed the dynamic. But prior to that, I was bullied a lot. And my mom was very overbearing and kind of one of those embarrassing parents, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, she used to call me dairy and, you know, I'd be in the tennis court and she'd be like, dairy, you forgot your water bottle. You know, like <laughs> and she's just a mom that loves her kid. Right. Right. But uh, it didn't serve me well in, in my social <laughs> circles. And because You're I was killing me, mom. Yeah. And, and I didn't have an older brother or an older sister, anybody to show me the ropes. And so a lot of the other kids did. And, and so I got picked on by other kids and by their older brothers and, you know, it was fairly terrorizing. And then there was, you know, the household was really unstable also. So like, I didn't feel safe at home and then I didn't feel safe 
you know, with the other kids. And, and then, and so I've always had a compassion for the underdog or for, you know, injustice, people that were being bullied. And then I shot up and, you know, punched a couple kids. And, and so that changed the dynamic of the bullying thing. Um, and I always got great grades, right? Like once I got into high school, it was straight A's and, and doing great on the football field and getting all the accolades. And so it was easy to, you know, pull the, I'm a good kid thing off where as socially I was primarily hanging around with kids that, uh, you know, had drug and alcohol issues, you know, from a young age and, you know, really weren't showing up for themselves in, in the classroom. And so it was sort of this like dual personality, right? None of the, I'll, I'll use air quotes. None of the bad kids you were hanging around with though, really kind of pulled you off track. Cause it sounds like straight A's and sports, you were pretty much dialed in. Yeah. It, it was interesting. Cause they were all sweethearts, right? All the, all these kids, like really sweet kids, but they were troubled. Right. And, uh, from their own broken homes and, and other issues. And so, um, they, they never, to my recollection, you made fun of me for doing well in school or anything like that. And to me, it just seemed natural that if I'm going to work so hard in school, I'm going to want to play hard. And right. you know, most of the other kids that were getting straight A's, you know, didn't seem super fun. <laughs> At least that was my perception. So I like to hang out with the, with the party guys. As far as sports, you, know, you talked about a growth spurt kind of when you were in fourth grade. Was football your first and only passion or did you play all sports? Yeah, I played all sports growing up as a kid and I wasn't great at them, particularly with the growing because I wasn't super coordinated. My body was taking time to catch up to <laughs> its size. Slow down. Right. <laughs> and then football came along and it was really my freshman year, my first year of high school football, uh, first year of tackle football. And I'd gone out for Pop Warner in the past, but because of the speed of my growth, I had a lot of trouble with my knees and knee pain. And so I wasn't able to play Pop Warner, but then I came to freshman year and they gave me a helmet and shoulder pads and said, see that guy with the ball, like go run get him, and get him. Yeah. Hit him. And turns out I could do that. And I was violent and really good at being violent. And it felt awesome to you know, use my body like a bat to hammer another person and just the feeling of power and being good at something like that. And then from there, it just took off. Was the turmoil at home directed at you or was it just turmoil between your mom and dad that you just didn't want to be around? Primarily the, the latter, right? But it was just very chaotic, you know, and, and my mom is a very sweet woman and loves her children dearly and just struggled a lot, um, you know, with stability, you know, mental stability, emotional stability, stuff like that. And uh, yeah, so it was just, uh, in retrospect, I realized I just never felt safe. Right. Never felt safe. And I see now that I way over indexed on the warrior. All right. So this little boy didn't feel safe at home, didn't feel safe being bullied. And so then I grew and became this badass on the football field, just wrecking people. And, and it was really driven by that. And then I see that that pattern continued on in life with, you know, joining special forces and, and whatnot. And it was like the, the grown man, you know, or the, the, the child didn't know that he grew up and became a badass. Right. So it was always pushing to like get to the next level of badassery. <laughs> right. And the grown man didn't realize that the kid was driving the bus most of the time. Right. So it was this interesting sort of you know, dichotomy. As you were growing up and, and becoming a young adult, did you find that you kind of inherently took on that, took on that protector role? Yeah, I did. I, I've always felt an injustice for any sort of bullying or anything like that. And, and didn't use my size to, you know, pick on people or bully anybody or beat anybody up or anything like that. So coming towards the end of high school, you mentioned Yale, but was college your ultimate goal? 
yeah, I always knew I was going to go to college. It was definitely expected in my household. Both my parents had gone to college and my stepdad was very academically inclined. He had gone to UC Berkeley when it was, you know, the top school in the nation on the, uh, as a public school. And as soon as I started getting the straight A's and I was a good athlete and was fully expected, I'd go to a good school. But then I think it was my junior year. I believe it was junior year letters started coming in from some of these schools. And the first one was Princeton. I was like, oh, wow, I could go to Princeton. Like, that's wild. Right. So Ivy League at that point in time wasn't your focus or your goal? No, it was just one. A college. Yeah, it was just one foot in front of the next. Like, obviously, I'm going to college. I'm just going to show up for my next class, my next semester, my next practice and chip away. Was the military even a thought at this point? No. My dad had been an enlisted guy in the Air Force and it wasn't really within my consciousness to serve in, in any capacity. It just didn't really exist. Did he talk about his military time fondly or? Not particularly. He, he talked about how difficult basic training was and, you know, he said he was grateful for his service and it, it did help shape him in some ways, but it wasn't something that he projected onto the kids in any way or myself. And I, I do remember at a certain point I was interested in the academies and looking to potentially go to Annapolis or West Point, but because I was playing football as well and, and fully planned to play football at the college level, the idea of having football as well as having to go through the boot camp and all that stuff just seemed like an awful lot. And then right. once the letters started coming in from the Ivy leagues and other schools, I decided to take a different route. What era was your dad in the service? It would have been the Vietnam era. Okay. Yeah. And heading into college, what year did you graduate high school? 1999. And heading into college, what was your career plan with this? You were going to play football and go to college, but what academically did you want to come out of it with? Yeah. So I was really interested in, in war, but from the policy side, right? So like leadership, service, and war. I, I grew up watching the History Channel with my dad as a young boy, and I remember being totally floored by the magnitude of, of death and destruction that man had perpetrated against man, and it just seemed totally insane to me. And so wanting to study war, understand war, and being mindful that what bigger thing is there for a people, for a society, than, than going to war, particularly a, a real war where the citizens face you know, the, the struggles right. in a way that we really haven't since, probably since World War II. And so that's what I wanted to study and, and what I wanted to do was to help, you know, to understand war in order to be able to maintain the peace, but not from a warfighter perspective, but from a policy maker perspective. So you mentioned you graduate high school in 99. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm doing the math and working it through my head. 9-11 happens while you're in college. Yeah, I was a junior. Is that what changed your trajectory and all of a sudden it's went from studying war to wanting to engage in war. Yes and no. And yes, in the sense that I wanted to join the military or the intelligence community right out of Yale. And I spoke to a couple veteran case officers. It was actually really interesting. It was through a family friend. It was a meeting at the Bohemian club in San Francisco with a couple active veteran case officers from CIA. And one was there for like 20 years. I think the other guy had been there for 15 years. One of them was, uh, had fought against the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 80s, spoke you know, various dialects of, uh, of the language and Pashtu and Dari, that type of thing. Not somebody who would have stories for an entire evening. He was on the first helicopter into Afghanistan after 9-11 with a briefcase full of three million bucks. 
right? And I'm this 21 year old kid, like fresh out of college. <laughs> oh yeah, these guys are heroes, right? And then the other guy was a non-official cover spy against China, you know? And like, I'm sitting here with these guys thinking, holy smokes, like this is, this is wild. And they basically told me like, don't be that cliche Ivy League kid. <laughs> doesn't know shit about the world or himself. So they, they were like, we got plenty of those, like go live some life, get into business, join the military. And so I looked at getting a commission and I spoke with each of the branches and I was really excited. And then I found out you can't get your job guaranteed as an officer. Right. So I could have signed up for five years or whatever it was and had no guarantee that I'd even get a combat branch and I could end up, you know, a supply officer or something like that. And something that just wasn't interesting to me and that I didn't want to do. And so, um, I didn't know at the time that there were a couple potential exceptions to that or, um, and so I decided that I wasn't going to do it. And my dad played a part in talking me out of it. And, and I understand like he didn't want his son to go off to war. Right. Right. And, um, because yeah, guaranteed signing up at that point in time, you know, pretty much you were guaranteed combat. Yeah. I mean, especially if you get a combat branch. Right. Right. And so, Ultimately, I decided not to do it because um, if I was going to sign on the line for that type of a commitment, I wanted to guarantee that I'd be able to, to go and close with and destroy the enemy in, in some fashion or form. Even at that point in time, were you thinking special forces? No, no, it wasn't really in my awareness um, that, that I recall. I just remember not being able to get as an officer any sort of guarantee and my dad saying, oh, well, you can't enlist. Right. Cause he had done the enlisted thing back in the day and right. gotten treated like shit and waste all this time going to college and then enlist. <laughs> right. Right. And so I was like, okay. And so I ended up just falling into medical sales. One of my fraternity brothers, uh, dads was a, a senior guy at a spinal bracing company and a bunch of us ended up working for that company and then going on from there. So how long were you out of college before you actually made the decision to enlist? I was 29. Yeah. So I had lived, you know, quite a bit of life and had my own ups and downs, both press, uh, professionally and personally. And, and, uh, you know, 2008 and the whole thing with the economy that, that affected me as well. And ultimately it was time to fish or cut bait, right? 29 years old. And, and I, I never shook that call to so something that just kept rattling in the back of your head. Yeah. I just felt like I'm a grown man. I'm strong. I'm capable. I'm competent. And why am I not serving my country? Like, am I better than these guys? Cause I went to an Ivy league school. And so like, you know, my life is worth more than theirs. I just felt guilty that I wasn't doing my duty considering everything that had happened on 9-11 and in the subsequent years. And so then I found out about the 18 x-ray program and that I could enlist off the street and get a shot at special forces. Did you, in that, those nine years, did you meet or, or develop contacts with anybody that was in the military or were you doing your research on it? Yeah, I was doing my research on my own and looking at different options. And I, I looked at the, the seal opportunity as well. And, and I just wasn't really feeling the water thing. Like I grew up swimming. Um, but more than that, it was with Green Berets learning the language, right? Working by, with, and through an indigenous uh, partner force, right? I really like the idea of like learning the language, learning the culture, and, and doing the unconventional warfare thing. So, so the job really spoke to me. So you enlisted in the Army what year? 2010. And on a special forces contract? Yep. So you knew going in, assuming everything goes according to plan, you would be a Green Beret. Right. With the caveat being my original enlistment contract was, a, I think it was a 35 Lima or something like that. It was for a crypto linguist because the language was that important to me. I really wanted to learn the language and specifically Arabic, right? To, as a window into that culture, into the Middle East and understand, you know, this, this 
culture in this place that had caused so much you know, challenge for the United States of America over all these years. Right. right. How do we engage with these people? And, and so I'd already been studying it, studying Islamist doc- doctrine and the different schools of, um, you know, Islam and things like that to try to understand, you know, the mindset. And of course it's not monolithic. It's, you know, all these different branches and, and um, you know, cultures within cultures and dialects and everything like that. But originally was signed up to be a crypto linguist. And then as I was training for the military, I was hitting it really hard and I knew how to work out having played high school and college football. And all of a sudden, like I see, you know, over a, a few months time, my physique completely transformed. And I remember looking in the mirror thinking, man, I'm a warrior. And I played linebacker in college, I was, you know, smacking people around the football field. Like I'm a warrior, what am I doing? Like I'm gonna ride a desk. And so I went in and changed my contract to the 18 x-ray the special forces contract and on that that first contract is it a four-year or six-year it was a five-year contract and i ended up extending a year in order to make e6 staff sergeant going in was your plan to just do that one contract or were you potentially thinking making a career out of it yeah i never considered making a career out of it because i always felt that my highest impact to u.s national security would be on the policy side beyond you know, kicking in doors and whatnot. And so I felt the call to go serve, the call to have the courage to be at the pointy end of the spear. If I was ever going to be in a position of making policy or as an elected official voting to send young men and women to war, I wanted to have the courage and the congruency and the conviction to have been there myself. And so using this now as a, as a catalyst to what you're doing today, You've made it through selection, you're a Green Beret, you're deployed. When does your mindset start shifting or when did you start seeing the mental health aspect from a negative impact on you? Well, I couldn't see it at the time. Because I mean, everything was about earning the Green Beret. When did you start feeling it? I mean, I've been feeling it my whole life. (laughs) I just didn't realize. Right. But when did I start having an awareness of like, oh, I need to tend to myself? Yes probably wasn't until a good ways, you know, out of the military, even, even just a couple of years ago. So you made it through that entire six years, no obvious issues that you were ignoring. I mean, I was just holding on so tight my whole life. Right. Just, you just felt that that was just, norm. Just living on the trauma, just running and gunning. You know what I mean? I didn't know anything else other than, than chaos internally and like emotionally, and then just trying to achieve my way into feeling normal-ish, right? When you were in and, and closing in on getting out, was there ever a thought of staying in longer? I know you said you extended that one year, but yeah. after that six-year mark. Yeah, I, I actually did want to stay in because of everything it took to earn my Green Beret and get onto a team and you know, finally start earning some respect right from the team members and some cool guy schools and you know getting uh, a deployment under my belt and i wanted to because i would imagine even at six years you're just scratching the surface yeah. of the potential training and experience oh yeah for sure and it, it's different experiences for different guys i mean some guys graduate the q course and meet their team downrange and they're in a gunfight the next day right and then they have all these kinetic deployments and whatnot it, it really depends on the hand you're dealt right and I felt that I hadn't gotten the experience that I had signed up for yet and really did feel called to re-enlist. However, I was split from my wife. I was 
divorced or divorcing at the time. And my daughter was in San Diego with my ex-wife and I was in Tennessee and, and, or deployed. Right. And only getting to see my daughter for a few days, every few months. And it was brutal. And so I made one of the best decisions I ever made, which was to get out and get back to my daughter's life. You're definitely not the first that I've talked to, and I'm sure not the last family and, and the obligations of family are one of the driving forces of why many people in the military get out before their 20 or their career. Yeah. Because, you know, from the, from the playing devil's advocate and looking at it from your daughter's point of view or your ex-wife's point of view, Hey, it's great that you're running and gunning and having fun, but we're stuck here at home and we're never seeing you. Yeah. So you do have to, to make that, that decision. And sometimes it's not the easiest decision or what is perceived as the easiest decision at the time. It was brutal at the time. I mean, looking back, it was a no brainer and thank God I made the right decision. I mean, not even close. Right. But at the time I had sold my soul to earn that green beret. I had been through hell. I gave everything for that. And to feel like I hadn't fully achieved what I set out to achieve was a really difficult thing to grapple with. And I'm fortunate and grateful that my team sergeant at the time, even though he was a hard ass and, and very tough, uh, he supported completely the decision to place family first. And so I was super grateful for that because we get a lot of pressure to stay in right throughout the, the chain of command and the ranks and there's financial incentives and the military had invested in a lot in me by that point. And so, Everybody wants you to, to re-enlist. And if, if you don't, you're seen as a shitbag almost, right? But he was supportive in that and always be grateful for that. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. From, from the military's perspective, whether you like it or not, you're a commodity to them. And they've invested a lot of money in you. And they want to ride that horse for as many years as possible. Sure. And, and your, and I'm overgeneralizing it, but your best interest isn't their first priority. No. <laughs> It's not coming out. What were you planning to do? Well, I was fortunate to have a pretty epic transition uh, to CIA, which is something I had always wanted to do. And at the time it was scary, right? Because I had just spent six years of my life taking this route and doing what I had to do to earn my green beret and be part of that community. And it wasn't easy. And I wanted to make sure that the transition was a successful one and it would be an upward trajectory and not a step back and going back into the private sector. And I had a degree from Yale. I had years in the private sector where I had some success and it was concerning that I wouldn't be able to, to make that an upward trajectory. And so I have a ton of compassion for guys that joined at 18 and didn't have time in the private sector or didn't have an undergraduate degree and they're trying to reinvent themselves after 10 or even 20 years with their retirement. Right. right? So I, I feel for those guys for sure. Cause I had everything in my corner and it was still terrifying. Right. And it ended up being a smooth transition and I was able to, uh, to do the agency thing. And, and, uh, that was very cool and interesting and, and, um, yeah. With all the boxes you check the education, the experience, the training, did the CIA come looking for you or did you go looking for them? No, it was actually a buddy that told me about the opportunity. Well, it's both actually. So I applied to be a case officer and I applied for ground branch over there. They, they did not move me forward for ground branch, but they did on the case officer side. But if I was going to be a case officer, I was going to have to live in DC, which is on the opposite side of the country for my daughter. And that would defeat the whole purpose of me getting out of the military. Right. Right. But then a buddy told 
<clears throat> excuse me, a buddy of mine from Special Forces told me about a unit called GRS, which is a lot of former special operators that are providing personal protection and other uh, skill sets for clandestine operations and that I'd be a great fit for it. And so I put my resume in for that and got the thumbs up and, and um, was able to align the stars to, to get out and get to the, to the pre-selection course and then the selection course and make it through that. And definitely wasn't easy. It was really a high level of skill that, that you have to have to make it through that course. You have to be a good shot and have a good day uh, on the test days. Otherwise you're going home, uh, which is stressful. Right. Uh, you know, we're used to stress at that point. And it's also nice knowing that all the guys that you're serving with are all not just former special operators, but former special operators that made it through a very rigorous selection course that involves, uh, you know, shooting, moving and communicating at a really high level. So basically uh, an all-star team. Yeah. Did, did that position guarantee you at least to be based on the West coast? Yeah, it was a, a contracting position. And in that unit, the majority of, of, men that do that job are contract employees as opposed to you know, full-time. Uh, so they're, they're contract workers as opposed to full-time employees, which we get paid more upfront and we have a ton of flexibility and the other guys have to live in DC and, you know, they get the benefits and more on the back end. So for me, it was a great fit. So I got to move to San Diego and, and uh, I actually did my deployments with them as I was transitioning to, to San Diego. And then uh, went into grad school because, you know, after a couple of deployments with, with GRS, I realized that there's really no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> you know, I got to do the cool guy stuff, live the pirate's life. And, you know, what we did was important, right? I mean, I did an operation over there where it was literally on the president's desk the next morning. That's pretty cool, right? To have like that strategic level impact. And um, at the same time, I saw guys in their fifties and, you know, didn't have relationships with their children and, yeah, maybe they had a little bit of money squirreled away, maybe not, right? But it just, it didn't seem like the upside was there. And and it was ultimately would have been a selfish thing for me to continue to deploy and, and you know, not be around my loved ones. So I decided to transition from that into grad school, which I did at UCSD, so close to my daughter. And So how many years were you with the agency? Uh, just one year, but it was, uh, it was two deployments. So two, three-month deployments and, you know, got to do something I'd always wanted to do and made a mature decision to you know move on in a way that was more congruent with my values and, and uh, my family. So, and so what year was it you went into grad school? 2017. And full head, like that was all you were doing, just going, you took GI bill or whatever and right. going to school is what I'm doing. Yep. And what were you studying? Uh, international affairs. So it was the UCSD's school of global policy and strategy. With a long-term goal of getting, was your interest to, as you've said previously, to go towards the politics side of war? Yes, I felt like that was where I would have the greatest impact on U.S. national security was on the the policy side, particularly the political side. So as an elected official. Graduated 2019? Uh, 2018. So it was a one-year accelerated executive program. And so hit it hard, graduated there, and then decided to, you know, all the policy positions. D.C. D.C. So I wanted to stay local. And so I went into the defense industry and after having worked so hard to get into special forces and serve in the military and then in the intelligence community and then study international affairs, it just seemed like the the natural next step would be to do something in aerospace and defense or in the military industrial complex. And at the time it felt like a noble calling, right? Like helping our warfighters at the pointy end of the spear be more lethal and more survivable, right? So that they could close with and destroy the enemy and more effectively and come home to their families. 
And so that's why I got into that space and worked with everybody from, you know, venture back startups to small businesses to publicly traded company. And, and over that time, you know, my view on conflict and politics changed dramatically and it no longer felt aligned for me to be in the kill chain, right. Involved with tactical missiles and things that, that uh, were being used to kill people. Right. And primarily because of a lack of trust in our institutions, it become clear to me that I couldn't trust these organizations anymore. And, you know, I knew at Yale or earlier about the Gulf of Tonkin and what happened in Vietnam with, you know, certain lies, right. And manipulations from the government in order to get into that conflict. And of course I knew, you know, the domino theory and we got to stop communism here. It's going to be there. And, and obviously Stalinist Russia or Maoist China, you know, weren't nice places to be. And I can understand that, that they, you know, could have or likely were threats to us national security and that of our allies. However, seeing the way the game has been played over the last few years, uh, completely vaporized any confidence that I had in our, in our institutions. Was it a, a single event catalyst or just the whole opportunity to be behind the curtain and see the complete operation that really kind of started changing your mind? It was a little bit about the behind the scenes stuff, but in the military, I mean, we didn't really talk politics. I mean, we're just so busy, especially on an SFODA, right? Right. And special forces, it's like, you got all these skill sets you have to be proficient in that are so diverse, everything from like language, you know, free fall operations. I was on a free fall team. Um, my actual job, which was an 18 echo special force, <clears throat> excuse me, special forces communication sergeant. Right. So all the personal radios, the, the vehicle radios, the team house stuff, being proficient at all of that as an Arabic speaker, as a shooter, right. So close quarters, combat, small unit tactics, and then the whole unconventional warfare thing by with and through our partners. I mean, it's just on and on and on, right. Operationally at the, at the tactical uh, operational levels. Right. So we're always behind the ball. There's really not a lot of time to talk about, you know, votes on the Hill or anything like that. Right. You know, it's about the guy next to you and it's about being squared away and able to accomplish the mission and reload and refit for the next one. And then, you know, similar, similarly at the agency, however, certain conversations I had with certain folks gave me a pretty clear indication that some things behind the scenes were what some would call a conspiratorial, right? And that was interesting as sort of a data point, right? And then things started to continue to unfold and we had COVID and we had these riots and they're burning our cities and, and the media is saying, Oh, it's a largely peaceful protest. And there's burning (laughs) buildings in the background, you know, or headlines like 21 officers hurt and mostly peaceful protest. And, you know, I'm familiar enough with psychological (laughs) operations and, and mass hypnosis uh, techniques, right. To, to know, know it when you see it. It right. just wasn't passing the sniff test and, and then data points coming in from, you know, this relationship here and that relationship there and everything from in the intelligence community to senior special operations officers to folks from the ultra high net worth class and just kind of seeing these little data points that start to paint a picture of something that's, that's nefarious, prima facie, right? I mean, it's, it's clear. And then to see the censorship, that's when I knew we were in big trouble. When you saw big tech shutting down debate, whether it was concerns people had about the integrity of the election or about the nature of COVID and how it was being treated, right? Like supposedly we, we live in this free society where the first amendment is first for a reason, right? The most important amendment, right? It's freedom of speech. It's freedom of conscience. It's freedom of religion. It's, you know, as a, a free being, it's an, our, our inherent right to be able to speak 
our truth, right? Within certain limits, like yelling fire in a crowded theater or calling for, you know, revolution against the government or something right. like that, right? But to see people just snuffed out and erased and silenced if they said anything other than the party line, the line of those in power, that was Stalinist. That was malice. That was cultural revolution. Rewrite the past. I mean, same thing with the statues. It's what they did in Maoist China, right? So like anybody that has even a cursory familiarity with, with 20th century history in China and Russia had to know what it was, right? And human beings are human beings. So everybody falls on a lockstep, keeps our heads down, tends our garden. And at a certain point, there was so much information coming in from these different avenues that I realized I no longer understood the operational environment of American politics. Right. Well, if you try, if you, from an outs, even from an outsider's perspective, if you try to form a truly well-rounded opinion, just based off of what is being presented to you by what we will deem our media, mm-hmm. I don't care if it's left or right, you're never going to get a complete picture. No. And it's done that way by design. Right. And so like the more information I did get, whether it was through the media or ancillary sources or directly from well-placed relationships, the more I realized I didn't know what was going on. And I spent my whole life trying to understand what was going on, right? I mean, I studied political science at Yale, right? And then I did these things real world at the pointy end of the spear and the special operations community and the intelligence community. And then in a, in a graduate program to understand international affairs, like I've studied history, right? And then to like realize, holy shit, this is not what I thought it was. And, and I don't understand it anymore. And when you don't understand your operational environment, you don't go on a mission, Right. I mean, it's setting yourself up for, for failure. Right. So I no longer had interest in the political route at that point. I don't want to put my hand up and, and go through all of that to, to join a game that I don't understand how it's played or that it's played in a way that is much darker and more dangerous than I realize. Right. Cause if I, if, if I really stand for individual Liberty and if I really stand for the constitution and that's, you know, I'm persona non grata in that environment. Well, and I think that really says something too for using yourself as an example of somebody who's studied it academically, lived it first world, transitioned into a, a furtherance of doing it more, the CIA and that type stuff, and still not being able to look at the chessboard and understand what's going on just shows you how much the machine intentionally gives conflicting information to keep the ground un- unsteady. Yeah. And it's ultimately designed to keep us at each other's throats, right? So black against white, gay against straight, man against woman, rich against poor, all these dichotomies, victim, victimizer, all these narratives. And we're getting hit all these different channels and media sources. And it's designed to keep us at each other's throats so that those that are in power can maintain that power and increase their wealth. Right. and it's not surprising if we think about human nature over time, you know, what families would do if they had a position on the market or on institutions or in banking or whatever it is that allowed them to, to coagulate levels of wealth that are virtually unfathomable. I mean, the idea that there's families that are worth hundreds of billions of dollars, there are families that are worth trillions of dollars. What does that mean? Right. And then you look at something like Epstein and clearly it's an intelligence operation. Just because the guy had money doesn't mean that you pay off a U.S. attorney and, and not have to go to prison for those crimes, right? You, you, don't, you don't get to buy your way out of that type of thing in our system. 
but he was untouchable. The reason he was untouchable is he was an asset. He was being run by an intelligence agency on behalf of who? That's another discussion. <laughs> but to to do what he did for blackmail and bribery purposes and control. And if that can happen in the United States of America at the highest levels of industry, politics, then we need to start asking ourselves some real questions about what the nature of our system is. Well, and even just the just a superficial glossing over it. War makes a lot of people money. Oh yeah. And, and whether you want to go down, as you referred to it as a conspiracy rabbit hole, us being involved in war makes certain people very rich and they want to keep us there. Totally. And there's a lot of people that love this country and are willing to do whatever it takes to, to defend Liberty and God bless them. Right. And who's pulling the strings. Why'd we go into Afghanistan? Well, it was 9-11 and then we're in Iraq and we spend, you know, tens of billions and thousands of lives and kill God knows how many people. And now it's not important anymore. And we're just out, but then we're going to go back. Right. So it, it, none of it passes the sniff test. It's the same thing that we saw on the TV screen during the pandemic. Right. It's, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. And um, that's a tough place for somebody to be to start having those realizations because it's not okay. But at the same time, what are we going to do about it? Right. I mean, I, we all have gardens to tend and got to take care of ourselves and our own, you know, physical, spiritual, and mental well-being, and that of our loved ones. And, and so at a certain point I just turned it off. And when was that final straw for you? That was about two years ago. So I think it was in the fall of 2021. And it finally came to a point where I said, I don't want anything to do with, with this drama anymore. I don't have the tools to fix it and I need to take care of myself and my family and just sort of went heads down and, and, you know, really the level of analysis determines what's important too. Right. And so going on to my healing path and, and taking the time and the effort and the energy and the tears to, to heal myself and go through that really became of paramount importance. You know, how can I get healthy so I can show up for myself and those that I love? When, when did you start your healing path and what got you onto it? Well, there's sort of different parts of that. And I think probably the first one would be just, you know, getting sober, right. With, with alcohol and, and, you know, I never got a DUI and never you know, ended up in jail for booze, but it was becoming an issue. Right. And, and so that was something that was on my radar, you know, on and off for quite a while. And, and, you know, ultimately putting the plug in the jug and, and getting sober was a big deal. And so that was one level of it. And then, and then learning how to just get still enough to start to feel was, was a big deal for me. And that, that actually took quite a bit, you know, of, of working with some really world-class healers and, and being able to just breathe and meditate and carve that sacred space where I could be with me and tend to myself as opposed to just going and going and going and going on to the next thing. And so it was through that process of grieving and mourning, uh, which in my case was about once a week for two years. So when you say once a week, how extent, like, what did it take you to? Well, it was, it was through the process of meditation on a daily basis, about 15, 20 minutes. And all of a sudden I just felt these, these deep currents of sorrow, like bubble up to the surface. And first one was around my daughter and missing out on a lot of her life due to my time in the military and the separation and the divorce. And my ex-wife and, and her left when I was in the Q course, you know, attempting to earn my green beret. There was no bandwidth to feel any of that. Right. 
I mean, I, I did a little bit the day they drove off, but then it was stuff it down and drive on. Otherwise, I couldn't show up to do what I had to do, right? And then I'm a new guy on a team. There's no bandwidth to feel any of that. So it just continued that pattern of stuffing it down and driving on, you know, until I was able to get to the point and the awareness and have some better tools. And, and so it was initially, there was this moment, it was, it was interesting. I felt it coming up and there was this like moment of decision. It's like split second. And I just thought to myself in that instant, I said, I'm a man. I've proven it to myself. I've proven it to my country. I'm going to feel this. And I just like released into it and leaned into it. And it was like a damn dagger in the heart. Was there someone in your life that was help pushing you towards the looking inside? Yeah, it was, it was really through a coach of mine that I had that had worked with all sorts of different folks, everybody from, you know, investors to, um, entrepreneurs and stuff like that, really successful, successful, you know, high level folks and had seen all different types of people and how many of us just drive ourselves relentlessly toward our goals. And then the wheels come off. Right. Um, and the analogy he uses, he says at a certain point, you know, it's like a rocket leaving the, like a spaceship, you know, leaving the earth. And at a certain point you got to drop the, can't just keep powering through that way. And so his guidance to me was really around relationship with self being the primary starting point for that healing journey. Did you go looking for him or did you happen to meet him? Well, I was actually talking to a buddy of mine who's a, a general partner at a, a venture fund, uh, a solo GP at his own fund actually, and was sharing with him. I was having a hard time. And he said, Hey, I know, I know a guy that might be able to help you. And, and that started the, uh, started the journey. Yeah. And for you today, what's the, what's the, the, the most reoccurring theme that, that, or thing that you do that kind of keeps you on your path? Slow and low. Basics. Sleep, diet, exercise, meditation, community, right? And this awareness that like gentleness and compassion for myself has to be my North Star right? Self-love is my North star because I didn't know anything about that. I didn't even have a relationship with myself. I was just running and gunning and numbing and chasing and right. And I couldn't show up for myself. And I couldn't show up for my loved ones. And I left a lot of wreckage and a lot of hurt, you know? And so having this really a humility, right? After getting life on enough, you know what I mean? And just getting to the point where it's like, holy shit, I need some help. I need, I need to heal. And there's something about the process of allowing myself to feel the sorrow. It was so alchemical and it really transmuted that deep hurt into something else. Right. And, and, and it's been my experience that the depth of the hurt is really the depth of the love because you can't have a broken heart unless you have a heart. Right. Right. And there's something about the poignancy of like being in the depth of true sorrow, like the truth of the heart, whether it's stuff from childhood or last week, right. That gifts us with, with, very special powers, right? Like to be gentle, to be compassionate for somebody like me is a big deal. Do you find that you struggle with that? I didn't know that I didn't know how to have that <laughs> for most of my life. I couldn't be compassionate or gentle with somebody because I was on fire. Right. I didn't know it. It was just so much suppressed sorrow. that I was just dog paddling, trying to keep my head above the water but I didn't know. I thought I was fine-ish or I had some awareness around some issues or challenges or whatnot, but I didn't know the depth of it. 
you know, but grieving once a week for two years, that'll wake a man up. Right. And it was just a very organic process. It wasn't like I was even seeking, you know, shadow work or, or sorrow work or anything like that. It was really just, you know, getting cracked open and then having a daily meditative practice because that's what my coach said to do. And I respected him and knew that he had had great outcomes with, for folks. And so I said, Roger that and started doing it. And then once this sorrow started coming up, he said, okay, he's like, you're hitting the sweet spot. Like this is the ninja level stuff. And I was like, all right. And I just kept leaning in. Taking it now from being able to see both sides, the hundred mile an hour warrior, the 10 mile an hour, calm, low and, you know, slow and low guy. From your perspective, would it be possible to blend those two? So going back to when you were a Green Beret running at 100 miles an hour, would it be possible to balance this out? Yeah, and it's interesting because there's certain archetypal energies involved that I've become aware of, and that's the masculine and the feminine, which we all have within us, right? And so I've realized that this path of healing, you know, dropping into the heart and feeling and allowing the energy to move through myself, right? Alchemizing the sorrow is really the feminine path of healing because all the gifts were feminine in nature, right? Gentleness, compassion. You can't call it feminine or feminine though, because it's not going to sell for guys. Well, (laughs) then they're going to probably get brought to their knees or they're going to put a bullet in their head. No, maybe there's another way that they can find. Right. But like for me, like I just had to get smashed enough to get cracked open to the sorrow. Right. And like, I'm here to say like, as a special operator, as a green beret, for me, my power and my kingship was on the other side of those tears. Right. And the, and the gifts along the way were feminine in nature and, and thank God. Right. Because I had a really unhealthy relationship with my masculine. It was the warrior, but it was, it wasn't the King. It was the tyrant. Right. And the abdicator, right. Pushing away responsibility, not stepping into my power. Right. And that divine king, that heart-centered king that commands from love. I didn't know anything about that. I didn't have any access to that energy. So I'd be the abdicator, right? Pushing away money, pushing away success. Right? The little abandoned boy that didn't feel lovable fundamentally, right? And then under times of stress, I would oscillate to the tyrant. And he'd come out. And that, that was ugly and damaging, right? And so tapping into the sorrow and getting these gifts and the ability just to be and the ability to receive. I didn't know about receiving. I just, yeah, I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. Like fundamentally, I just didn't know how damn hurt I was. You know what I mean? But like this path did take me into the feminine and it did, there, there, there was almost like a rejection of the masculine for a while, which is strange, right? You know, mm-hmm. for a guy like myself, there's always a masculine dude, right? A big guy, a violent guy, you know, uh, rewarded for violence and football and, and special operations. And, but then like associating so much of that violent, death killing with the masculine it was like no and like i just had to move away from that but then i alienated myself from the healthy masculine so it's really been this journey about like healing my relationship with the feminine and then going back toward the masculine and healing my relationship with the masculine and like what does it mean you know to be a healthy whole man when you when you got on this journey and and started realizing okay i have to embrace this other side, the feminine side, whatever you want to refer to it as. Mm -hmm. Did you, did it alienate you with your brothers from your special forces days and, and your military time? Or did you find others that came along, you were able to bring them along that journey with you? 
Yeah, I was sort of isolated anyway, right? Because the guys that stay in, they're in, and now I'm out. Right. right? So it's kind of like... You got off the train, and it's still going 100 yeah. miles an hour. And that's just sort of how it is. Now, there were a handful of guys that I stayed in touch with that were in, and, and I still do today, that are still in um, or getting out shortly. And there were some other guys that were already out that became more and more open to the healing path out of necessity, right? And some of them are doing great financially and they're killing it and making a bunch of money, but they got, you know, a money problem or a, a sex problem or a food problem or, you know, whatever sort of numbing agent, right? And the success thing can be tricky. I mean, that's a slippery slope. I mean, I know a handful of folks that are, you know, heading toward being high net worth or ultra high net worth folks or, or that are already there. And it's, you know, it's a tricky place to be too. If we haven't done our healing work, I mean, that can just be another addiction that that's ultimately self-abandoning and creating a lot of destruction. So let's go into your music. Have you always been into music? No. So didn't grow up as a kid playing any instruments, never even dabbled in it. Well, that's not true. I started playing the piano when I was really young, hated it. And then I found a guitar under my mom's bed in middle school. And I said, can I, can I play this and ditch the piano? And she said, sure. So I started with a guitar and then all my buddies started playing guitar and then it wasn't cool anymore. So I switched to bass and listened to like Primus and Rush and Metallica, Chili Peppers and whatnot. And so I enjoyed the bass and I ended up playing in a college band doing like backup vocals and just cover songs and stuff like that. And then I sort of ditched the bass and didn't really do anything. I'd, I'd sing karaoke from time to time and that was about it. But it was really, to be candid, it was really the, the healing journey that was precipitated by psychedelics, right? So psychedelic medicines such as like MDMA, psilocybin, uh, and others that, that allowed me to access this part of myself. Did you go down to Mexico and do the... Um, so there's a variety of, of opportunities. So there's guys going down to Mexico with, with vets. There's guys going down to, to South America with the uh, heroic arts program. The vets is veterans exploring treatment solutions. And there's a, a handful of great organizations and I, I can't get in too much to the, the different tools in the toolkit or, or methods that I've been blessed to use myself, uh, at least at this time, but, um, it's saving lives. Can, sure. we, can we just talk about your experience with psychedelics? Absolutely. And, and, and I just want to be clear as to why I was maybe a little bit less than candid right out of the gate. And that's cause I, I still am in a professional space. That's a little bit gray when it comes to that. So this is sort of like my first. And obviously only talk about what you feel comfortable with and, and are clear to talk about. Well, I want to be of like maximum service. And the, the truth is I had my first public discussion about this at the science of psychedelics conference where I was on the veteran panel. So, so technically it's, it's already out in the public space. So, and, and I feel like I can't really, share my message without being candid about it. So, and ultimately it's about serving whoever hears it. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So for me, it, it, it was the psychedelic medicines that allowed me access to that part of myself that was just locked away. And it, frankly, it was a place I never wanted to go. I didn't want to go here at all. It was that life led me to a point where I just knew I was totally disconnected from my heart and I was running. I was like Houdini, like an escape artist, right? Such a weird dichotomy. And you've, you've hit on it a couple of times. Somebody who is at the point of the spear hitting life's hardest challenges head on and is afraid to just simply look inside and, and be open to opening your heart. Yep. Terrifying. 
I mean, jumping out of planes at night, like doing all the stuff that we do. It's like, that's one thing, right? Like the physical courage, the physical, like, but to dive into here, into that abyss, right? I, it just wasn't something I was interested in until it came to a point in my awareness that I was not doing so hot. And really it was COVID that brought that more to the front because as a Enneagram seven and the Enneagram personality types, I'm busy, right? From dawn till dusk, just go, 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 go. And at, at the less than healthy levels, that's a strategy that, that sevens use to deal with the primordial anxiety and terror of life, right? Is to just go a mile a minute. Now are you go, 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 go. So you don't have the downtime to be inside your head. That's it. Right. But then COVID happened and everything shut down. (laughs) So I didn't have anywhere to go to. Right. So this awareness of a disconnect with my inner self, with my heart became so acute and so obvious that I was talking to a buddy. He said, I know a guy. And next thing I know, I'm getting connected with this world-class guy that's been doing this for 25 years you know, guiding people with these medicines that are, you know, proven with tons of clinical backing, right? Like from MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, which we're really excited to be performing for at their annual conference coming up in June (laughs) or later this month. So do you have reservations about doing it? Only where it was going to take me. From the feeling of not wanting to open that door or the feeling of potentially not being in control? The control thing didn't bother me as much. I mean, I was always sort of going with my ass on fire, you know what I mean? Just running and gunning. It was, it was just having to feel all the stuff I didn't want to feel, but I, I knew it was time. I knew I couldn't keep running anymore because it was just abandoning myself and right. not, not showing up for myself. And if I can't show up for myself, I can't show up for anyone else. <clears throat> Did going through that process, was it, when you got done with it to the point of shit, I should have done this a long time ago. Well, it depends on how one looks at the nature of reality <laughs> or as far as timing and that sort of thing. But yeah, of course. It, so it's it, so profound. The, the healing that takes place and the healing that takes place during the medicine, but more importantly, like what it opens up. So for me, in my experience, like the medicine's not a panacea. It's not a fix it button. And it can be, perceived as that because the experiences can be so powerful. They call them entheogens for a reason, right? The God within. So it's like, it shoots you to the top of the mountain and you see this view and it's just like unspeakably beautiful. I mean, totally ineffable. You can't even describe the perfection of reality, right? The love. And then next thing you know, it's like you're in the afterglow for a few days and then you're back climbing the mountain all scuffed up and bloody. Right. But for me, it was like a, a doorway that was open, like a doorway into my heart, a doorway into myself. And then the daily practice was the path, just one foot in front of the other, slow and low, one day at a time, getting still, breathing, meditating, tending to myself, sleep, diet, exercise, like that trifecta of mental health, right? And, you know, meeting other veterans or knowing other veterans that like come to this awareness of how hurt they are particularly guys with moral injury from combat and stuff like that, or guys that have, you know, um, just experienced that level of trauma. If you were giving advice and obviously everybody's different, you talk about now today, you're one of your daily tasks. I'll call it 
is meditation. From your perspective, would you recommend somebody starting down that path and then do a psychedelics or use psychedelics as like the door and get right in and, and then? Yeah, I think it depends on the person, right? And that they need to be wise about it because these are very, very powerful tools. And the misuse isn't so much around addiction in my understanding and experience, although they are so powerful, these experiences that sometimes people come back to them maybe more often than, than is wise in thinking that if a little bit's good, then more's better as opposed to saying, okay, this is just opening me up to do my daily work. Right. It's maybe a little bit less glamorous than rocketing to the top of the mountain. So I would say use caution, uh, do your research and don't underestimate the power of these, these substances to heal and open the gateway and open the doorway for, for healing. And of course there's contraindications as well that medically need to be understood, you know, certain mental health things or neurotransmitter and biochemical uh, conditions or medications that are contraindicated. So they have to be wise about that. For somebody who's interested in going down that path, where would you say is a good starting point to start doing their research? Well, go for veterans, uh, vets, Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions is great. There's an organization called uh, SOCF or Special Operators. It's sending guys through other organizations. The Mission Within is another great nonprofit, as well as uh, the Heroic Hearts Project. So all those are doing work with veterans around medicine. Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. There's also a documentary, I believe, by the same name. It's a wonderful documentary called Trips of Compassion. It was filmed in Israel about the use of MDMA for therapy. MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, is a premier organization that's been fighting for over three decades, I believe, to legalize MDMA for therapeutic purposes. And they've had quite a bit of success in doing that. And I believe that these powerful tools are going to become more and more accessible to folks and more and more legal in the clinical setting. And they really should be because they work. And the clinical documentation is there. Right, whether it's psilocybin, it's been used at Johns Hopkins and a variety of other academic medical institutions to great effect for a variety of um, challenges that folks have had. So, I think, unfortunately, there's still a big portion of our society that they simply hear psychedelics and they think back to the 60s and LSD and, you know, they're not looking at the big picture and the benefits they can have. Now, here's the big picture. We're killing ourselves. Every day. How many? A couple dozen? That's the picture. That's the only picture. Whatever's going on right now is not working. Right? It's totally unacceptable. We all know it. And so we need something better. And if these medicines can work, then they should be used. And I don't think we should, you know, get uh, sidetracked or make up stories about it that are going to preclude guys from getting access to this stuff. Right. And I think it needs to be done wisely. And I think that there's pitfalls around the use of these medicines if they're not done right. However, two dozen guys and gals killing themselves every day is not acceptable. Right. And so we need to find a way to get these medicines in, whether it's through the VA or you know, other uh, nonprofits, whether guys got to go down to Mexico or do it on tribal land, you know, coordination and concert with uh, native tribes that, that uh, have 
warrior spirits and a lot of pride around their own service and, and uh, warriorhood. So, yeah, it's needed. So let's get back to the music. Um, what brought you back to wanting to make music or get involved with music? So it really came out of nowhere. I met a couple guys at a spiritual lecture at a venture capitalist house in Encinitas. It was quite an interesting event. And these guys were interesting, you know, young entrepreneurs. And, and they invited me over to their place in Solano Beach and started hanging out. And they have this beautiful music studio, probably a million bucks. I mean, just world-class with murals and black light. And they flew mur- uh, artists up from South America to do these incredible murals. And, and so I was just hanging out and they were playing and just picked up the mic and started singing. And it was just like <sighs> download, right? vocal melody lyrics just pouring out of me and everybody was like what was that and I said I don't know man and and from then on we started recording our jam sessions and just have it coming through right from that same space that the medicine like open right like just that deep deep space of of love and sorrow right and it was so fun and creative and just felt so alive and so much joy and then few weeks of doing that and then i was at this training for how to tell your story from stage and one of the top guys in that space his name is bo eason and and he was conducting his event he said okay close your eyes and see yourself up on stage and so i closed my eyes and expecting to see myself giving a speech or you know behind a a podium or a lectern or whatever and i instead i this like vision just like came down and i see myself and there's just tens of thousands of people it's like the biggest crowd I've ever seen in my life. And I'm on stage and I'm playing the keyboard and I don't even play the keys. Right. And I'm singing and I look to my right and there's Andrea Bocelli and we're doing a duet. And it was just like, <laughs> just totally floored me. It was so real. It was a vision. Right. I mean, I had like tears in my eyes. Right. And then he goes, okay, you know, finish up the exercise. And I'm sitting there going, what the hell was that? And immediately after he goes, Hey Drew, why don't you introduce yourself? And just like another participant kind of randomly. Right. And the guy stands up and he goes, uh, my name is Drew Lawrence. I'm a multi-platinum singing songwriting coach from LA. I'm thinking, holy shit, that's my guy. And introduced myself, had him over to the house, had a little jam session. And next thing I know, I'm going up to LA every chance I get and we're making music. And the first time I heard myself, you know, with the headphones on singing on the studio mic, I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's me. It's like, that's you. So is there auto tune on or anything? He's like, no, nah, man, that's you. And I was like, shit. And it just exploded. I mean, it's been 11 months. We have 16 demos, basically like an album and a half. Right. And every song matters. Every word of every song matters. And there's so much joy in the process for me and the impact that it's already having on people. I mean, we just released one song, Right. And the other ones that we've shared with family and friends and other people, like it's a common response to be in tears, to be pierced through the heart, as one Navy SEAL buddy of mine said. And I went over to his place and I was like, hey, can I sing you a song, man? You want to hear one of these songs? He goes, yeah, man. And this guy's like in his 50s. You know, he's had this stellar career as a naval special operator, right? Really respected in his communities and been on his healing path in a very deliberate way as well. And, and so I play the music on the, his speaker, right? The backing track. And I close my eyes and I'm singing. Like, I really want to deliver for him, you know? And so my eyes are closed and I sing the song. And I open my eyes at the end of the song. And he's got tears dripping from the bottom of his chin. And he looks at me and goes, you just pierced me through the heart, brother. I'm thinking, holy shit. Like, what I saw in that vision is real. 
So for those listening right now who want to go listen to the song, what's the song title and where, where's the easiest place to find it? Okay. So it's been a, uh, an Instagram release so far, exclusively on Instagram uh, on Memorial Day. So just a few days ago, and it's love in lightning music is our uh, Instagram page. And it's N like, you know, guns and roses, mm-hmm. it's love and lightning, the letter N. Uh, love and lightning music and it's just right there on the page brother in my arms is the name of our debut single and that's the one that we performed at the science of psychedelics conference as well as the special forces association and and it's also the one we're going to be performing in, in a few days at the maps conference when you wrote that song did the words come easy for you in the sense like was it right there or did you have to work through it it's both they came easy and they came hard at the same time they came easy because they were just flowing, but they came hard because it was like they cut right through my heart. I was in the studio up in LA and I'm just breaking down. I mean, three or four times I'm just in tears, right? Cause I, dudes are killing themselves, you know, every day, right? They're in the dark, they're lost, they're hopeless. And I felt that, you know, I felt that and the words are coming and it's just like, took the breath out of me, you know, and, and drew, God bless him. He, you know, he just kept us moving along. Like he, he wanted to harness that, you know, that energy. And next thing I know I'm on the mic, right? Like that same day, right? Just as we're writing this song and, you know, and you can hear it, you know, the, the dark and the light, the sorrow and the hope. When you're writing a song, does the, the music come to your head first and then words or is it always words and then you find the music that works for it? It's a great question. So most of the time it's the music. It'll be like a little ditty, you know, and I hear it in my head. I hear the little ditty and I'm just kind of like jamming on it, you know, driving. A lot of times it happens in the car. I'm cruising and, and then the words, but most of it comes straight in, which is interesting. There was one song where I, I, I had a couple sections of the verse, like whole first verse and, and the hook for the chorus. And I shared it with, with Drew and my producer and we did a little zoom session on it and got the piano. And then right after the zoom session, I'm so excited because now I got the piano to kind of spin the words for the whole thing. And I started in on the second verse and a, a line comes in and it was, um, I heard a song from a ghost. Holy shit. What is that? I scrapped all my lyrics. <laughs> you know, I was like, I'll save those maybe for another, that's gone. And the whole thing came in, same thing. You know, just like a dagger in the heart, right? And that song's a song to a guy that's already taken his own life. And of course, it's for the families, it's for his friends, it's for right. it's for the guys that haven't done it yet, and hopefully, you know, we'll never do it, right? Um, but it's like you know, if we could just turn back time, you know, and the hook for that is uh, you just need love, right? Which might sound like a trite little thing to say, you know, and but uh. It's the medicine, man. That strikes me as very poignant because it takes me back to what we were talking about earlier in that boys are raised, boys don't cry. And, and it may seem something that's very not nothing to it. It's trite, but even just saying, man, all we need is love. It, it seems when you hear the words, it seems like that. But it means so much more. If there was just more love in the world, you know, and if more people worked on just trying to be a better person, how much different would this world be? It'd be completely different. And, and love is the most powerful magic in the universe. 
right? And, and that's why the songs are so effective, right? Because you can, the texture of it is in there, right? You can't fake it. And it surpasses, it circumvents the critical mind, the mind that, of a man that says, I don't want to hear that, right? But when you hear the song and you're already hooked in, and then the message can land, you know, because the armor's not up. And, and I do believe that, that we're all doing our best. I do believe that consciousness always operates at the highest level that it can based on its awareness. And from that, forgiveness is made easier, in particular forgiveness for self and really seeing myself and others as innocent, right? And one of my teachers, Aaron Apke, uh, talks about, you know, you see a little baby eating and making a mess and you're not going to go knife hand the baby and say, you're screwed <laughs> up, baby, like get it together. You, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. Right. That's unreasonable. But unfortunately, parents, we do screw up and we do maybe not to that extreme, but we do just as stupid things to our kids. We do. And then that's the, the level of awareness. Right. And we somehow think that because we can make intelligible sentences with our mouth and like clean ourselves in a way that a baby can't. Right. <laughs> it, it, we're so much better. <laughs> we're so much better than babies. Right. We're like fully in control of our, our body minds. Right. And that just doesn't seem to be accurate to me. It, it seems like we're an amalgamation of biology and physiology and, and, and neurology and, and nature and nurture and circumstance and trauma and experience and environment, right? We're just sort of being lived by life. And if we can see ourselves through the lens of that innocence, there's something that really expands in our ability to forgive ourselves and others, right? And, and the love, it's, it's just something about when we, when we heal that when, when we allow ourselves to get cracked open at the deepest part of our spirits, there's a light. And I don't know if that light comes from without or within or both, but, but there's something there. And it's at the deepest part of us is love. And that's one of the things I saw with, the medicine, right? It's like all the physical reality is just vibrating light powered by love. It's a love song, right? And all the trauma, all the darkness, all the pain, it's just to cut our hearts so that they can grow in compassion and love for ourselves, which then spills out into the world, right? So to see that and to feel it and to touch it and to have it move through the deepest part of me is an ineffable experience. I mean, you, you really can't even explain that. And then days and weeks go by and, you know, back in the grind and, and the illusion and the fear and, and whatnot, it's, it can be easy to forget the lessons, right? But using the tools and getting still and breathing and being gentle with myself and reminding myself of what I believe to be the truth as kept my ass alive <laughs> and maybe I can shine a little bit of light for somebody else. And, and that's really the true blessing. I would imagine for, for most of us, um, use myself and as, as an example, music does so much for your soul. Every one of us has that song, those songs that just hit home for whatever reason, they don't hit home for everybody else, but for you, when you're writing a song, do you feel like you're writing it to get yourself out or do you see it as trying to help somebody else? 
that is such an interesting question for me because I see it as helping others. And when I look back at just the last few weeks and few months, at the contraction, at the darkness, at the despair even that I've experienced as these songs are pouring out of me, it's been this a, a real dichotomy that I've been in darkness as this light is pouring out of me, right? And I've realized more and more as I continue to refine the collection of, of songs that we've put together that they're for me. I thought they were for the guys. I thought they were for others, right? And they are. And I need to hear this stuff. I need to remember these things. So it's, it's, it's really quite surreal to have these things coming through and there's a lot of effort in it, but it's also effortless. Right? Right. The effort is driving my ass up to LA all the time. <laughs> yeah, spending a lot of money and time and talent and treasure to be able to bring these things to fruition, but they, they do largely come through and it's it, where it feels like I'm just receiving them. Like they already exist in the future. and They're just coming through and it's very much motivated by the desire to serve and shine that light for others. And then more and more, I'm having an awareness that I need it. I need this hope too. Have you had that experience yet where you wrote, recorded, and, and done a song, and then maybe you listen to it a week later, a month later, whatever, and all of a sudden it just hits you completely different than what you, were, what you thought you were putting down in words into music? Yeah, it's, it's been very interesting because it's, it's different for each song, but predominantly, particularly on, on three or four that are like really poignant, specifically for, for the folks that are in the dark, that are eyeballing the pistol or that have already taken their own life. As, as I mentioned earlier, I could, I mean, it's just the process of it coming through is, it was pretty agonizing, you know, to like really empathize with what that's like. Right. And like, I've never had a gun in my mouth. Thank God. But I know guys that have, you know, and some of them made it so far. Some of them didn't. At your worst, did you find yourself getting close to that cliff? It's hard to say because I don't think that I would ever harm myself because of my love for my daughter and my fiance. And I just don't think I would do that. And, and I'd like to be able to sit here and say, I would never do that. And, and I want to say that. And I've been in despair. I've been in darkness. I've been hopeless or in the illusion of hopelessness. I have had thoughts that weren't comfortable to have around ideation and stuff like that. And, and to me, there's a huge difference between you know, having thoughts that one might not be able to control. Right. Um, and then actually like contemplating self-harm or something like that, but it's a pretty damn uncomfortable thing to experience. Right. Right. Like to be suffering and to be thinking about, you know, suicide and the angle of the pistol and like, you know, that type of stuff. It's like, I don't want to think about that. And then Sometimes there's judgment around that, right? Where it's like, so it's like, how, how, how do we just let go and allow ourselves to experience these things, allow these energies and emotions and ideas and thoughts to pass through us without judgment around it. And so that's something that still learning how to, how to do. Right. And even, even recently it's been tough. Right. And I have so much support. A degree from Yale, a resume, right? Different positions with companies and 
in different success and industry and, and a graduate degree and some money in the bank and, you know, friends and, and tons of support, tons of support. And I've been in a tough place, man. And it's given me so much compassion for the guys that don't have that support. It's like, no wonder they're clacking themselves off. So I don't know if it's something that I, I, I'm supposed to experience to give me that compassion or, or if it's tied to the music or, or what, but definitely learning. Well, and you talked about earlier about working out and I'll use that as an analogy because I think all of us can easily relate to it. Every one of us looks in the mirror and goes, man, I could probably lose 10 pounds. And so you get strict for a little while, the scale starts dropping, you get excited. And then all of a sudden, little things start creeping back in. You have an extra drink on the weekend and the scale starts going up. So it is that up and down and it takes commitment and dedication to it. I would imagine it's going to be the same way with your mental health journey. Just because you say, okay, I'm good. I'm going to go talk to a counselor. I'm going to do psychedelics. Doesn't mean it completely erases the slate 100% clean. We have, like you said, we have a lifetime of trauma. That shit is going to creep back in. It's a long road. It has been for me. And I put a lot into this thing. A lot of effort, a lot of courage, a lot of tears, getting healthy. And it's been a long road. And sometimes I don't see the improvements that I've made. And I don't even have an awareness of it, right? So that's where support, whether it's from the spouse or close friends or coaches, is so important. Because I know for me, a lot of times I can't see myself as far as how far I've come. And so to have my fiance say, you're a completely different person. You've changed so much. I'm so proud of you. That is awesome to hear, especially on the days where it's harder. There's some darkness for me. Number one, just hang on. Like no matter what, just don't kill yourself today. Take a knee, drink water, face out, accept the feet, cry roll around on the ground, you know, do anything but kill yourself today. Wait for tomorrow <laughs> if you're at the edge. And, and it, it's okay to be at the edge, you know? And, you know, I have a buddy that was really close to suicide and someone told him, you know, if you choose to do that, I'll still love you. You choose to take your own life and that's a choice. And he said for him, that was super empowering. And when he thought about it, he kind of, was a little less interested in doing it, right? When he saw it through that lens. Um, but yeah, I mean, my best advice is just hang on. Hang on another day, reach out. And, and here's the thing, like when we're in a gunfight, whether you're a cop or a special operator downrange or, or you're a first responder and, and you're doing your job, whether that involves bullets or not, right? We won't think twice about asking for support. We're trained to ask for support. We're trained to call in QRF, right? and put our hands up or get on the radio because that's the job. You got to get the mission done. And if you need support, you damn well better call it in. Right. And we're honored to show up to support our brothers in a fight or when someone's bleeding out or whatever it is. But then we get out and we're in a new operational environment and we don't have an identity that's maybe healthy or solid, or we don't know who the hell we are anymore. And we're hurting. We're dying. And, that, and we either don't even think about calling support or we don't know how to call for support or we do, but it just, there's this like crazy stigma. You know what I mean? And, and it's bullshit. 
call for support. Like your mission is to stay alive and show up for yourself and your loved ones, right? If that's the mission, you better call for support, right? And there's nobody that that doesn't apply to. You know, like I put my hand up for support even recently. I got all these things in my favor. And I was at the point where I was really struggling. And I put my hand up and let some buddies know. And because I had made those relationships and nurtured those relationships, I mean, boom, the phone starts ringing. And this, I got everything that I need, right? And like, whether I use every tool in the toolkit or not of all the support that showed up, who knows? But right now I feel pretty damn good knowing I got that much support. And just knowing that all these people care about me enough to show up, like that feels pretty great. Two things that you said that believe are really important. First is the importance of keeping your tribe around you, a a, a circle of people who can see you on the daily, who can affirm positives, hey, you're getting better, but will also be the first to say, hey, you look like you're taking a couple steps backwards. And that ties into exactly what you were just saying. Whether you're going into a firefight or whether you're going into a fire, none of us would ever go do it by ourselves. Nope. We do everything that we're trained on is to do it as a team. But when we start getting into the Rubik's Cube between our ears, most of us tend to circle the wagons and don't, don't want anybody on the outside to know that we're struggling. And like you said, we don't put our hand up and say, I need help. Yeah. And I think what we need is an understanding that we are in a new operational environment. There's a new mission and that new mission requires a new identity and a new set of skills and, and tools. Right. Because, you know, for me, so much of who I was, was a green beret, was a special operator. Uh, and then you get out and you're selling widgets for a company, right? Whether you're in aerospace and defense and the military industrial complex or not, like, who am I now? Does this matter? Is this important? Right. So having the awareness that when we transition, we are entering a new operational environment and we can bring aspects of ourselves with us. We can bring tools and and skills and some might apply more than you think and others might not. But having that awareness that we're in a new environment, a new mission, and we need an identity that that's going to work in that new environment and that identity better involve the ability to call in for support to accomplish that mission. And sometimes that mission is staying alive one more day, just like downrange. But now it's a different enemy, right? It's the enemy between our ears. Going forward with your music and, and your, do you call it a band or is it a duo with you and your fiance? Thank you for asking. So it's a duo and our buddy, Nick, uh, Nicholas uh, Devlin was an army ranger and he started coming up to the studio and he gave me a ride one time and, and we threw him on the mic and he sounded awesome. And he had actually had a background as a bassist and a punk rock band and, and, uh, and vocal coaching and just sounds phenomenal. So he's playing bass and backup vocals for us. And then, uh, we have a lovely uh, pianist, uh, Tehila that we're speaking with. who's a, a professional in her own right and a composer and a singer songwriter. And she's, uh, interested to collaborate as well. So sort of piecing it together. What's on the horizon or, or are you doing, um, use the term gigs. Um, are you, are you performing regularly where people could go see you? Uh, not yet. So we just relaunched our first single brother in my arms. We're going to have a second single in a couple months, uh, likely a third single after that. And then a full uh, LP album in the fall. And during that time we will be starting to gig more 
although right now we're just really laser focused on on getting the releases out and, and sharing the music with the broader audience so right now if you want to hear your music the the pathway to it is through your instagram page Correct. And we're going to be releasing on the 17th or 18th uh, across all streaming platforms, uh, our single brother in my arms. From the purely selfish perspective, and, and I have zero musical talent or ability, but the one thing that I have said to people is it's got to be an amazing experience. And I hope for this for you to write a song, have it become so well known that you stand on stage and the people in the audience sing it back to you. I think that has to be one of the best feelings for a person in, in the world. I can't wait. And, and to have the feedback that we've already gotten just with a couple performances. And I mean, I mean, we literally had dozens of people come up to Aurora and I after the performance at the science of psychedelics conference. And it was just so impacted and so grateful to have been impacted in that way. And, and having them reflect that to us was, it's really encouraging and inspiring and that's needed when you're spending the time the talent the treasure to create something that is a work of love that we want so desperately to share with those who need to hear it and there's a knowingness we have of the power of what's coming through and and how important it is that that people hear it and how much impact it's going to have and to have a ranger that hears it in tears listening to it six times in a row and telling us it's going to save lives to have a green beret saying it dropped him and his cast to the, to the ground and that he believes it's going to save lives. And he's put it in the intermission of his play that the Gary Sinise foundation's, you know, funding to go around the country and to have these things happen. It's, it's hugely humbling and it's inspiring. And uh, we're grateful for that. To in no way try to sound triter or, dismissive or whatever word it might be if you your song helps one person it's immeasurable the amount of worth that that song is is needed and so i wish you the best of luck with it you know and i hope that you touch a million hearts with it and i wish you the best of luck thank you so much and and i agree completely you know you you help one person to find hope and it changes the world Let's wrap this up with, so what's, what's the meaning behind your stage name of Ashoka? Thank you for asking that. So it's a name that chose me. I had a session with one of my healers who's absolutely world-class and he works with A-list actors that everybody would have heard of and, you know, marketing wizards and stuff like that. And he had taken me through this visualization of diving into the sea and then this underground passageway and coming upon these three statues and, and the, the statues have an energy ball at the bottom. And it was essentially symbolized the warrior, the child and the avoider. And I was shutting these statues down and taking the energy and putting it into the statue of the Olympian, which is the higher self. Right. And, uh, and then merging with that statue. So it was a really powerful visualization, like super poignant, right? And two hours later, I'm at a lunch, and this was at an energy conference. And there was a gal that was selling malas uh, that was sitting with us, and she was passing them around. And I look, and you know, with the prayer beads around, and, and one had a coin on the bottom, and I looked at it, and there was a statue, statues of three lions that at the bottom had the wheel of karma, right? Looking like an energy ball, right? And I'm thinking, holy shit, this is it. I mean, this is the visual, the three statues, the three lions, and now I'm wearing it as the fourth. I mean, the symbolism was totally aligned. And 
it wasn't for about a year until I was reading autobiography of a yogi that I saw that the picture of those statues and it was called an Ashoka pillar stone. And there was an emperor in that part of the world that as the legend goes, was uh, a, a warring emperor and he went out to the battlefield. It was a successful battle and he had destroyed the enemy army and he looked around at all the carnage and all the death and it just hit him in the heart. And he said, never again, like this is wrong. Like I will be a man of peace. And he became a, a huge proponent for the Buddhist philosophy in, in that part of the world and created these Ashoka pillar stones all over the empire. And so to find out about the name Ashoka uh, from this emperor a year after having this experience uh, that was, you know, very mystical and, and poignant. Um, yeah. I knew that the name had chosen me. Well, it definitely sounds like you found a, a great path for yourself and I'm sure staying on, it's going to definitely help others. So like I said before, I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity to be here with you. You've been down deep inside the valley, countless dusty roads. Now all the ones who love you, you can't keep them closed. But you got something to hold on to A bond that will never break An honor you belong to Won't let you slip away Shine, shine your light in the dark Remember who you are Beneath those battle scars Brother in my arms If you're out of the fight I'll be by your side So let me be your light Shining in the dark
thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, transitiondrillpodcast.com, and through the contact tab, send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.